Well, uh, many of you may have read Alice in Wonderland at some point in your life. Uh, it's uh, from the genre that we would call fantasy. And uh, the book begins with Alice kind of sitting on a riverbank, uh, lazily uh, wasting a day away, when a uh, white talking rabbit dressed in clothes uh, goes scampering by her. And so she wakes up and she follows this rabbit, and the rabbit dives into the rabbit hole, and Alice follows her down into the rabbit hole. And when she gets down there, all kinds of strange and unpredictable things happen to her. And she met incredible characters like the Cheshire Cat, uh, and the Mad Hatter, uh, and towards the end of the book, uh, she was convicted by the Queen of Hearts uh, for stealing tarts, and for that crime, she was sentenced to death. The, the Queen said, off with her head. You may remember that famous line. And so, uh, happily for Alice, before the Queen could execute judgment, uh, she was wakened by her sister. Uh, she had been sleeping on the side of the riverbank, and this whole thing had only been a really bad uh, dream that Alice was having. Well, Alice's first mistake was climbing into the rabbit hole. And from there, she journeyed further and deeper uh, into Wonderland, where all kinds of unpredictable and progressively worse things happened to her. And I'm telling you this story because our passage today reminds me of the story of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, because the unbelieving Gentiles that Paul was talking about in verses 18 to 32, they entered into the rabbit hole of idolatry. Remember that the start of this whole passage is talking about idolatry and then the sin that flows from idolatry. So from there, from entering into the rabbit hole of idolatry, they spiraled into all kinds of different manner of sin. Uh, and uh, we see in this passage that God gave them over to uh, the consequences of their sin. And so what we'll be talking about today then is uh, the consequences of their sin that we're calling the results of God's wrath that we see in verses 24 to 32. And the, the, the three consequences that God and Paul specifically mention in this chapter are uh, that he gives them over, God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's the first thing. And then God gives them over to degrading passions. And then finally, to a depraved mind. Now, we will be talking about homosexuality today because uh, this is uh, what Paul used as an illustration to talk about uh, what idolatry leads to. But I want none of us to get too comfortable pointing at other people and talking about other people's sins. Uh, the lesson for today is that whatever sin that we might allow ourselves uh, to fall into, uh, the same result will happen for us. If we don't repent of, us, of it, God will give us over to the consequences of it and allow us to suffer a severe discipline from it as well. So before we go forward, let's look backward. Let's just take a, a minute to review uh, where we have been in the book. Uh, remember uh, that from the chart that I gave you in the first week, uh, He's talking about sin on the one hand because he's going to talk about salvation next. Uh, that's what Paul is talking about. And so we're through the first section in verses 1 to 17 where Paul introduced the gospel message. And now we're in the second section where Paul is talking about the sin of all mankind, but specifically talking about the sin of the Gentiles in verses 18 to 32. And so he wants to show that all people are under, are, are victim, uh, fall victim to sin, are, are sinners in themselves and sin, uh, and that we all need grace. And so uh, for the Gentiles, their sin was idolatry followed by immorality. 
Uh, last week, we talked about God's revelation of his wrath in verse 18a. You'll remember that, that God reveals his wrath, and, and God's wrath is his natural hatred, his natural revulsion uh, to sin because it's contrary uh, to his holy nature and character. And we saw that God shows his wrath in a couple of ways. He can do it uh, catastrophically by uh, uh, intervening in nature. Uh, we saw that in the flood. We saw that in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Uh, but we also understand that God can reveal his wrath gradually uh, by allowing people to suffer the consequences of their sin uh, over a period of time. And that's the kind of uh, revelation of God's wrath that we'll be talking about today. We also saw uh, that there are reasons for God's wrath. We looked at that in verses 18b to 23. Uh, God poured out his wrath on the Gentiles who suppressed the truth about what could be known of God in nature and those who didn't worship him or give him thanks. And instead, uh, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God uh, for an image in the form of man and birds and uh, four-legged animals and crawling creatures. And that's idolatry. They were practicing idolatry. And idolatry is the rabbit hole that always leads to immorality. Now, before we dig into the passage, uh, let's just discuss for a second why immorality always, or idolatry always leads to immorality. Uh, whatever we worship instead of God uh, is just an extension of who we want God to be rather than who God really is. We remove God from his throne and we replace something that we have created and we put him, uh, we put that, or the, the thing that we have created by our own imagination, we put that on God's throne. And that God reflects our own desires and our own passions and our own sense of morality. And so the God that we have created serves us rather than us serving God. And this God that we have created will never judge us since it's just an extension of us. It's going to approve everything that we do. And so when we think about what idolatry is, it's simply replacing God with ourselves and our own wicked desires. And God pours out his wrath on this idolatry because uh, it, he will not share his throne with us. And whenever we try to usurp God's throne and try to put ourselves in his place, uh, there will be judgment. And he judges immorality uh, against habitually unrepentant, unrepentant sinners by leaving them uh, to the consequences of their sin, by handing them over, in fact, to the consequences of their sin. So we've seen then uh, the revelation of God's wrath. We've seen the reason for God's wrath. And this week, we're going to look at the results of God's wrath in verses 24 to 32. So uh, the first result of God's wrath is that God gave them over to impurity, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, idolatry sends us spiraling into all kinds of immorality and degradation. <clears throat> and the beginning of the plunge into the rabbit hole is the decision to trade the truth that can be known about God uh, for the image of man. Uh, and first, we see in verse 23 that they traded uh, the glory of God. Verse 23 says that they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image uh, of corruptible man. And then the second thing they traded was the 
the truth. So the glory and the truth both have been traded. And we see that in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God uh, for a lie. Uh, when you look at the Greek, the Greek actually has the definite article in front of the word lie. So it's actually ought to be translated, they, tr they traded the truth of God for the lie. And so the truth about God is what can be known about him through nature that he has revealed to himself in mankind. And we all know from, uh, to mankind, so we all know from looking at nature that he exists and that there are certain things that we can know about him. And the specific lie that Paul was referencing here was the lie of idolatry. It's people's re rejection of God in favor of idols that they have created uh, for themselves and serve. And the first result of this tragic decision is what we see in verse 30, uh, 24, that God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I want you to see here that God did not give them the lusts of their hearts, right? The lusts of their hearts were already there. God gave them over to the lusts of their heart that already existed within them to impurity. Uh, this word for gave them over is the Greek word paradidomai, and it means to, to hand something over to somebody else, to deliver something. And this word is used many, many times uh, in the Bible, uh, but specifically uh, it's used in the context of giving somebody over to their sin or to results that God has in mind for them uh, many times in the Bible. And so what we see here is that this is the first time of three times in this passage that this word giving over, God giving them over, is used here. And each time, God is giving them over to increased and more intensified judgment for their sin. And I want us to see that this giving over that God does is not passive. It's not something that God just allows to happen. Uh, he doesn't just take his hands off the wheel. This is something that God does actively uh, and intentionally to bring about judgment uh, to people who intentionally continue sinning. And this is important because uh, even though God hands sinners over to the consequences of their sin, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God still dictates what the punishment will be and what the judgment will be uh, for their particular sin. So I want us to look at a couple of other uses of this word uh, in the Bible so we'll get the sense, we'll really understand how active God is uh, in this giving over and handing over to the consequence of sin. Uh, First way that he does it is that in the Old Testament, sometimes uh, God would hand Israel's enemies over to her for judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, but the Lord your God will deliver them before you, that's paradidomi, and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will paradidomi, he'll deliver their kings into your hands. So we see God's activity in this in determining the outcome he wants at other times, God reverses the situation. He delivers Israel into her enemy's hands. So we see it here in Leviticus chapter 26. I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered, paradidomi, uh, into enemy hands. So God was not passive in Israel's wars, right? God actively determined outcomes. He was actively uh, involved and produced the outcome that he wanted. If he simply took his hands off and, and allowed things to unfold as they might without his intervention, then we don't know, and God wouldn't know, uh, what the outcome would be. Either side might win the war, right? Uh, but God wanted a particular outcome. He ordained a particular outcome, and he actively caused it to happen in the mystery of his sovereignty uh, through uh, human instruments. And, and that's how God's sovereignty in, in judgment works. 
And God does the same thing when he's judging sin. God doesn't just move out of the way and allow people to suffer the consequences of their sin. He actively is involved in the consequences of their sin because he's sovereign over the consequences of the sin and, and he chooses the punishment uh, that we will suffer. Uh, so God removes people's restraints so that they will continue down into the rabbit hole of the sin that they are engaged in. Uh, and he sovereignly causes them to suffer the consequences that he ordains and that he desires. And so when we put other things in his place habitually and, and remove him from the throne and put idols in his place, we are subject to this kind of judgment. Uh, we don't know what his purposes are in the judgment. When he's judging unbelievers, uh, we don't know if he's doing it to simply and strictly punish or if he's using that punishment to draw people to himself or some combination of both. Uh, God is sovereign in these things and uh, that will take us into the doctrine of election, we'll have, which we'll have plenty of time to talk about in Romans, so don't feel cheated today. Uh, we will get back to it. Uh, but we're, what we're talking about today is that only God knows whose are his and he meets out judgment as he he deems appropriate, uh, and people will receive that judgment when they give themselves over to habitual sin. Well, let's talk about what he gave them over to. In verses 24 and 25, it says that he gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, uh, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And we see here that lust begins uh, in the heart, and it leads to sin. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that uh, if anybody lusts after a woman in his own heart, he's already committed adultery uh, with her. Uh, and so Jesus wanted us to have pure hearts. Uh, impurity is a general word. It, it, it means to decay, uh, like a body would decay in the grave. But Paul was talking here about sexual impurity, and he makes that clear in these next couple of verses. Uh, their sexual impurity takes them deeper into the rabbit hole, uh, leading first to impurity and then next to degrading passions, uh, which he uh, talks about in terms of homosexuality in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Well, these are some of the strongest verses in the Bible against the practice of homosexuality. Uh, the for this reason at the beginning of the verse uh, indicates the cause of God's judgment. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Uh, in verse 24, when we were talking about lust, uh, the word that Paul used there was this word epithumia, which means a craving or an evil desire. But here, when in verse 26, where he talks about these degrading passions, the word is pathos. And what that means is a constant condition of burning passion that overwhelms uh, a person and, and controls that person so that he can't do anything else but be enslaved to this passion. So God giving them over means that God has removed all restraint uh, and he has uh, actively allowed uh, their impurity to grow into degrading passions and he actively handed them over to this and his judgment continued to intensify. 
Now, Paul started out with the women in verse 26, probably because he wanted to finish strongly with the men uh, in verse 27. Uh, he says in verse 26, the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And I think out of common decency, uh, Paul did not uh, articulate in any detail uh, the, what the women were doing. He leaves it to our own uh, particular uh, knowledge of, of what they were doing. He doesn't have to spell it all out explicitly. Uh, Paul was a little more explicit in talking about the men, uh, saying that they abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men committing indecent acts uh, with other men. So. Uh, without going too much into detail, Paul is telling these folks what it is that these people are engaged in. Now, let us just remember uh, that he's not railing against his readership, right? His Roman audience are Christians, and they're not practicing uh, this behavior. But he's, he's uh, making a strong statement against the, the practices of these unbelieving Gentiles and talking about the reasons why their idolatry led to immorality and specifically detailing their immorality. I also want us to remember from the introduction, remember that Paul was writing this letter from the city of Corinth. And if there was any city in the whole ancient world that could rival Rome in terms of debauchery and immorality, it was Corinth. So the things that Paul is writing about here, he sees all around him. All of this stuff is happening right in front of his face. And he's writing to an audience that is seeing the very same things all around them as well. Uh, so they are kindred spirits in that they're both uh, uh, understanding uh, this sin of the Gentiles that is before them every day. Now, homosexual activity uh, was just as prevalent in Paul's day uh, as it is today. And it's not just in society and culture, but it's also true even in the church today. Uh, when I was uh, an intern at uh, Stonebriar Community Church back in 2014, uh, one of the things that, that we did that was a, a fun thing that they did for us was uh, they would pile all the interns and a couple of pastors in the van, and we would take a ride around Texas. They called it the Thousand Mile Journey, and we drove you know, around a thousand miles going to see various churches, learning how other churches do church, and, and uh, just gaining experience as interns for what we might encounter when we were out leading churches of our own. And so one of the churches that we visited was a United Methodist Church out in the hill country somewhere. And uh, we met and were, uh, you know, kind of interviewed a pastor of that church. Now, remember, this is 2014. Uh, and one of the things that was heavy on his mind was this issue about homosexuality. He said, uh, you know, we really have a problem in our denomination here because this issue of homosexuality is tearing our church apart. What do we do? Do we allow them into church membership? Do we allow them uh, to be ordained into the clergy? How do we handle this particular issue. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, what we really need is for some young, smart guy uh, to come and tell us how to handle this issue. Uh, and for all of us on the trip, we all kind of looked at each other a little bit flabbergasted, like, you know, the Bible kind of speaks pretty clearly about what, to, what we're supposed to do about this issue. Uh, but he understood that this issue was tearing the denomination apart. And uh, as you know, he spoke prophetically uh, not two months ago, the United Methodist Church uh, uh, voted uh, to split right into the uh, more liberal uh, side of the denomination that wants to ordain uh, homosexuals into the clergy and allow them into church membership, and then the conservative side uh, that wants to follow the, the traditional biblical teaching uh, on homosexuality. Uh, so this is a very prevalent and hot-button issue even today. So I just want us to take a step back here and look at what God's design for sex and marriage is. 
Uh, what is the problem with homosexual behavior? Why does the Bible speak against it? Why does God care what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own house? Why is that even an issue? Well, it's an issue, and God cares because he has a very specific design for sex and marriage. And anything outside of his design and plan for marriage uh, is against his natural order. So I want to just look for a second uh, at Genesis chapter 2, and let's just think about God's created order uh, in the institutions of marriage and sex. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. And I first want us to consider, as we look at this passage, uh, that there was a need for marriage. God created the need for marriage. Uh, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. You remember, of course, in creation that uh, man was the crowning achievement of God's creation. All of the creatures that God made, he made before man, and yet none of them was suitable to Adam for love, for companionship, for help, uh, and to perpetuate the human race. So, uh, because there was a need for marriage, uh, God designed marriage. Verse 218, again, the second half, I will make a helper suitable for him. God did not make another man to fulfill the need that Adam had. He made Eve because only a woman had the capacity and the ability to fill, fulfill Adam's need biologically, physically, and spiritually. God's plan for the perpetuation of the human race and, and for the, his design for the, the plan for his family, for the family to be the building block of society, all comes from God's design for marriage. So he designed marriage, but he had to provide for marriage because as of yet, Eve did not exist. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we see that marriage was God's idea. He provided for it. It was his plan to put man and woman together. And he could have formed Eve from the dust of the earth like he formed Adam from the dust of the earth. But the way he did it emphasizes uh, the oneness, the bond that exists between the man and the woman in the marriage covenant. God made them from the same flesh. And when Adam woke up, he recognized that Eve was exactly what he needed, and he loved her. So he provided for marriage. And then finally, we see God's order for marriage in verses 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's order for marriage is that the man leaves his parents' home and be joined to his wife and start a new home. And the bond that is created is both physical, it's spiritual, uh, it's uh, uh, mental, and it's functional. All these things are created uh, in this marriage bond. So men and women are not free to be promiscuous. They are joined together. Uh, the word for joined, if uh, you have some of the older versions like the King James would say, uh, you leave and you cleave, right? The, the word for cleave, uh, that, that word actually means to be glued together. Uh, so uh, this is a little softer when we say be joined together. Um, be cleaved, to be glued together is a lot stronger. It means that, that uh, what Jesus said is true. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
So that is God's plan for sex and marriage. So why does homosexual behavior violate God's plan for marriage? Well, it's, it's against his plan, first of all, because it violates the natural order that God has designed, because it fulfills none of God's plans for sex and marriage. Remember that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their homosexual activity, uh, the, the, their desire for one another. And uh, people do argue uh, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah not because of homosexuality, but because they were planning to rape the men. And that's partially true, but remember also uh, that uh, Lot offered his daughters uh, to these men uh, who wanted to have sex, and those men refused his daughters. They wanted to have sex with the men. And so uh, probably a combination of uh, rape and homosexuality, but certainly homosexuality is part of the problem there. And if we're confused about that, well, Leviticus 18 makes it crystal clear uh, what God's position on marriage is. He says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is, it is an abomination. And in Leviticus chapter 20, God prescribes the death penalty uh, for such behavior. So why does God care about homosexuality? God cares about it because it's against his natural order. God created them male and female. But God also is against it because of the harm it does. Now, obviously, the reproductive purposes of sex cannot be fulfilled through homosexual activity, but that's only part of it. Uh, I reviewed a lot of studies and statistics before uh, uh, in preparation for today, and uh, I just found what you already know, uh, and that is uh, a lot, so many studies show that uh, homosexuals, especially male homosexuals, uh, on average by surveys that they've taken have, have admitted to having hundreds, most times in excess of 500 sexual partners. Uh, so uh, that's against God's leave and cleave, right? Join together, uh, man, and, man and woman for life. Uh, the Center for Disease Control says that homosexuals, particularly males, are much more likely to be depressed and suicidal over time. The statistics are off the chart in terms of suicide and depression rates for homosexual males as opposed to heterosexuals. Uh, and uh, also, they are much more likely to, uh, to pass along sexually transmitted diseases because of their promiscuity. So uh, those are just three things. Uh, the list could go on and on, and I don't want to beat it. Uh, to death, but God is against it because it's against his natural order and because he loves us and he knows the harm that this causes. Now, those who argue against uh, what these verses mean uh, in Romans often say that uh, we evangelicals are misinterpreting uh, the verses here in Romans. They say that when Paul wrote that homosexuality is against nature, he meant against our own personal nature. And so, uh, in other words, uh, for homosexuals, their relationships cannot be unnatural because they're perfectly natural to them. Uh, so uh, it's only wrong for a heterosexual to practice homosexuality because then they're acting against their own personal nature. And the problem with that, of course, is that that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about God's created order, God's uh, natural uh, 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 way that things go. He's referring to, God, to nature the way God made it, not our own personal uh, inclinations or orientation. 
Now, the other argument that people who say that we are misinterpreting this passage say is that uh, Paul was only condemning homosexuality when one person is in a, a dominant uh, relationship to another person. Like, for example, when you would have a, a prostitution relationship, uh, a relationship with a child, a relationship like a master-slave relationship, rather than two consenting adults uh, acting together. And the problem with that argument is that that's not what Paul says. Uh, that is not mentioned there or anywhere else in the whole Bible. Uh, but people will always look for a way around God's truth uh, when it suits them. Uh, Paul and God consistently condemn such behavior because it's against God's natural order and because of the harm that it does. So what we see at the end of verse 27 uh, is that God gives them over in their persons to the due penalty of their error. Now, I want to just go back and remember the context that Paul is speaking into again so that we don't lose uh, the forest for the trees. Uh, Paul was referring to these unbelieving Gentiles who rejected God and who had established idols in God's place. And they exchanged the glory of God uh, and they exchanged his truth for the lie. Now, homosexuality is idolatry because it removes God and his created order from the throne and establishes self and our sinful desires in his place. And that's idolatry, no matter what it is that we put on God's throne. When we take God off and we put ourselves or our desires on the throne, it's idolatry. And as with any form of idolatry, God will allow them to receive the due penalty of their error. In other words, he hands them over to the consequences of their sin. And the consequences of sin, homosexuality, and any other kind of sin that we habitually engage in is often pain, suffering, and sinful lives. Uh, someone once said, uh, the consequence of sin is sin, uh, that you are stuck in this sinful life. Well, for whatever reason, Paul chose to single out homosexuality that results from idolatry for special mention here. And I'm talking about it at length today because it's so prevalent in contemporary society, first of all. And second, because I told you when we first started that I wasn't going to dodge uh, any issue that we uh, come across in Romans. And so uh, this is a difficult one, but it's here. And so we have to talk about it. And so that's what we're going to do. But let's also be quick to say when we're talking about homosexuality, let's just say that God does not condemn the person. God only condemns the sin, and God will forgive homosexuality, just like he'll forgive every sin that we commit, you and I, and has forgiven already through the blood of Jesus Christ. But because the LGBT movement is so vocal today, uh, evangelicals have reacted strongly against that. And of course we should. We should stand up for what biblical truth is. But... Evangelicals can be very guilty of uh, looking at homosexuality and saying it is the worst sin, right? We, it's, it's the sin du jour these days. We rail against homosexuality as if it is the worst sin, but God never once calls homosexuality the worst sin. God hates all sin. He hates pride. He hates uh, murder. He hates dishonesty. He hates greed. You name it. He hates all of those sins. And Jesus died on the cross uh, to pay for every sin that we've ever committed, not just homosexuality, all of our sins, everything that we might do. And he died because he loves us and he wants us to be in heaven with him. But God does want us to live his way. Uh, idolatry leads to immorality, which leads to lusts uh, of impure hearts and to degrading passions. 
Now, our culture today, as you know, demands that we not only tolerate homosexual behavior, but that we affirm it and that we celebrate it. And as Christians, that's something that we can't do. Uh, we can't celebrate what God calls an abomination. We, we have to stand up for biblical truth, uh, even if we're hated for it, and you know that we are, and even if we're called bigots for it, and you know that we are. That's the way the culture is going. But we stand up for it not to be right. That is not the goal, to, to, to shout down somebody else and be right and pound them with biblical truth, uh, even though that is what we do. Uh, we do it because we love them. The whole point of talking to anyone about their sin is out of love. We do that first. Uh, and as we think about homosexuality, uh, we have to remember to be compassionate. Uh, sometimes that is missing from our evangelical witness, and uh, most of you know that's true. We, we see it all around us. Uh, many homosexuals would say that they don't choose to be this way. And many are trying to break out of that homosexual lifestyle, uh, and it's difficult to do. And so we need to realize that they, people practicing homosexuality, are not the enemy. Satan and sin are the enemy. Well, let's always remember that because God loves the person. He just doesn't like the sin. And so when we are going to stand up for, uh, for biblical truth, we have to do it lovingly. And I pray that if we know anybody who is struggling with homosexual uh, tendencies or dabbling in it or has given themselves over to a full-fledged homosexual lifestyle, uh, that we will pray for that person. Uh, Jesus told us to love our neighbor, even our homosexual neighbor. They're included. And God wants us to do that. It, it's much easier to ignore a homosexual uh, than it is to say God loves you, but he doesn't love your sin. Uh, and it's easy to walk away from a homosexual who says, God made me this way and I don't care what the Bible says. Uh, it's much harder uh, to stand in front of a person and speak the truth to them and to do it in love. You know that we as evangelicals often come across as judgmental, self-righteous, unloving. We have that reputation. You know that, right? Uh, and and uh, sometimes we've earned it, you know? Sometimes we earn that reputation. And they call us hypocrites because they see us condemning uh, homosexual, uh, homosexuality and abortion as loud as, as we possibly can. And then they see us committing these sins over here uh, and they say, hey, you know, you guys are hypocrites. You, you don't follow God's law either. So if we are going to speak the truth in love, uh, we have to ensure that our own lives are free of habitual sin. Uh, and if they are, and if we have invested the time and the effort and cultivated a relationship with somebody who's practicing homosexual behavior, then perhaps we have earned the right to speak truth into their life. And if we have, let's remember the in love part. Let's remember to speak the truth in love. That means we tell God's truth while at the same time loving that person just like Jesus loved that per person, with compassion, with empathy, not by carrying a hateful sign at a rally or posting some uh, offensive remark on social media or telling them uh, to their face, you're going to hell. Uh, that's not loving. That's not how God wants us to witness to people. Jesus died for their sin just like he died for ours. They're not worse than us. Their sins are just different than our sins. And so we should pray that in God's mercy, uh, that his handing them over to their sin causes them to seek the Lord and be saved. That is what we ought to be praying for. So uh, God gives them over to the impurity of their hearts. He gives them over to degrading passions. And finally, he gives them over to a depraved mind, verses 28 to 32. 
And just as God did not, or just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, whoops, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, I don't struggle with uh, same-sex attraction, so I don't understand it. But I recognize myself in this laundry list of sins. Do you? If we're being honest with ourselves, I recognize myself here, and I'm sure you recognize yourselves too. And so again, our sins are not better than the sin of homosexual behavior. They're just different. This list is extensive, and it's very convicting. People, even Christians, can make idols out of things. We can make an idol out of work and money, and we can work 24-7 to accumulate more and more money, but our families fall victim because we are not serving the role that God has for us as husband or wife and parent to our children. God wants us to have proper balance. Uh, we can make an idol out of sex. We, we want to have it, and then we want to have more and more of it, but then we need it to be more interesting, so we uh, find other people to have it with, and we get trapped in this uh, world of pornography. These things can happen. Sex addiction, uh, pornography, adultery, all these things are, are things that can cause us to lose our families uh, and our wives. People can make uh, idols out of pleasure, any kind of pleasure, uh, drug addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, food, golf, social media, any of these things can be uh, something that takes over our lives and costs us our family or lead to other kinds of problems. Now, as Christians, we know that when God hands us over to our sin, uh, it's not to cost us our salvation. Our salvation is secure. But he will uh, use handing over to, our to the consequences of sin to discipline us, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 12, to cause us to repent. But if we choose habitual sin over God's way, we choose idolatry, and idolatry has consequences. And what we see here in verse 32 is that sin loves company. Right? Sin loves company. In verse 32, he said the Gentiles were not even ashamed of their sin, but they encouraged others to do the same. And that's true today, too. Somehow we can think uh, that there is safety in numbers, right? If everybody's doing it, then it's okay if I do it, too. Uh, but that's not true. Their behavior then becomes worthy of God's condemnation and punishment. Now, the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that those who believe in him will have eternal life. And even if we have allowed some form of idolatry to gain a foothold in our own lives, uh, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Uh, God is so patient and he is so good and he is so gracious to us. And so I praise God that he has freed us from the penalty of sin even though sometimes the power of sin is still strong in our lives. So uh, we ask God for the power to defeat sin in our lives and, and give us the strength to walk with him. And we thank God that even though we are so unworthy of salvation, uh, that God has given it to us anyway. And he will give it to anyone who asks through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord God, that's a difficult message. It's a difficult topic. We want to speak your truth, and yet we want to love your people, and we want to love the world, Lord, and we don't want to come across as judgmental and hypocritical, Lord. We pray that you will help us with this. Lord, we ask you that uh, you would remove anything from uh, this message that is not of value and just blow it away like chaff, Lord, and what is of value, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work it in our hearts. Uh, Lord, help us to love your people like you love them and help us to build bridges to people rather than building walls uh, that separates us from them. Lord, we just ask for your grace and mercy in this message and, and as we try to understand your word, may the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to help us apply it to our lives and think about what we can do in light of what we've heard. We thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ and his cross and it's in his name we pray, amen.